Section 24 of The Theory of Moral Sentiments. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Andrus. The Theory of Moral Sentiments by Adam Smith. Part 5, Section 2, Chapter 2. Of the Influence of Custom and fashion upon moral sentiments. Since our sentiments concerning beauty of every kind are so much influenced by custom and fashion, it cannot be expected that those concerning the beauty of conduct should be entirely exempted from the dominion of those principles. Their influence here, however, seems to be much less than it is everywhere else. There is, perhaps, no form of external objects, how absurd and fanatical soever, to which custom will not reconcile us, or which fashion will not render even agreeable but the characters and conduct of a nero or a claudius are what no custom will ever reconcile us to what no fashion will ever render agreeable but the one will always be the object of dread and hatred the other of scorn and derision the principles of the imagination upon which our sense of beauty depends are of a very nice and delicate nature and may easily be altered by habit and education but the sentiments of moral approbation and disapprobation are founded on the strongest and most vigorous passions of human nature and though they may be somewhat warped cannot be entirely perverted but though the influence of custom and fashion upon moral sentiments is not altogether so great it is however perfectly similar to what it is everywhere else when custom and fashion coincide with the natural principles of right or wrong they heighten the delicacy of our sentiments and increase our abhorrence for everything which approaches to evil those who have been educated in what is really good company not in what is commonly called such who have been accustomed to see nothing in the persons whom they esteemed and lived with but justice modesty humanity and good order are more shocked with whatever seems to be inconsistent with the rules which those virtues prescribe those on the contrary who have had the misfortune to be brought up amidst violence licentiousness falsehood and injustice lose though not all sense of the impropriety of such conduct yet all sense of its dreadful enormity or of the vengeance and punishment due it they have been familiarized with it from their infancy custom has rendered it habitual to them and they are very apt to regard it as what is called the way of the world something which either may or must be practised to hinder us from being the dupes of our own integrity fashion too will sometimes give reputation to a certain degree of disorder and on the contrary discountenance qualities which deserve esteem in the reign of charles the second a degree of licentiousness was deemed the characteristic of a liberal education it was connected according to the notion of those times with generosity sincerity magnanimity loyalty and proof that the person who acted in this manner was a gentleman and not a puritan severity of manners and regularity of conduct on the other hand were altogether unfashionable and were connected in the imagination of that age with cant cunning hypocrisy and low manners to superficial minds the vices of the great seem at all times agreeable they connect them not only with the splendor of fortune but with many superior virtues which they ascribe to their superiors 
with the spirit of freedom and independency, with frankness, generosity, humanity, and politeness. The virtues of the inferior ranks of people, on the contrary, their parsimonious frugality, their painful industry, and rigid adherence to rules, seems to them mean and disagreeable. They connect them both with the meanness of the station to which those qualities commonly belong, and with many great vices, which they suppose usually accompany them, such as an abject, cowardly, ill-natured, lying, pilfering disposition. The objects with which men in different professions and states of life are conversant, being very different, and habituating them to very different passions, naturally form in them very different characters and manners. We expect in each rank and profession a degree of those manners, which experience has taught us belong to it but as in each species of things we are particularly pleased with the middle conformation which in every part and feature agrees most exactly with the general standard which nature seems to have established for things of that kind so in each rank or if i may say so in each species of men we are particularly pleased if they have neither too much nor too little of the character which usually accompanies their particular condition and situation. A man, we say, should look like his trade and profession, yet the pedantry of every profession is disagreeable. The different periods of life have, for the same reason, different manners assigned to them. We expect in old age that gravity and sedateness which its infirmities its long experience and its worn-out sensibility seem to render both natural and respectable and we lay our account to find in youth that sensibility that gaiety and sprightly vivacity which experience teaches us to expect from the lively impressions that all interesting objects are apt to make upon the tender and unpractised senses of that early period of life each of those two ages, however, may easily have too much of the peculiarities which belong to it. The flirting levity of youth and the immovable insensibility of old age are equally disagreeable. The young, according to the common saying, are most agreeable when in their behavior there is something of the manners of the old, and the old when they retain something of the gaiety of the young. Either of them, however, may easily have too much of the manners of the other. The extreme coldness and dull formality which are pardoned in old age make youth ridiculous the levity the carelessness and the vanity which are indulged in youth render old age contemptible the peculiar character and manners which we are led by custom to appropriate to each rank and profession have sometimes perhaps a propriety independent of custom and what we should approve of for their own sakes if we took into consideration all the different circumstances which naturally affect those in each different state of life the propriety of a person's behavior depends not upon its suitableness to any one circumstance of his situation but to all the circumstances which when we bring his case home to ourselves we feel should naturally call upon his attention if he appears to be so much occupied by any one of them as entirely to neglect the rest we disapprove of all conduct as something which we cannot entirely go along with because not properly adjusted to all the circumstances of his situation yet perhaps the emotion he expresses for the object which principally interests him does not exceed what we should entirely sympathize with 
and approve of in one whose attention was not required by any other thing a parent in private life might upon the loss of an only son express without blame a degree of grief and tenderness which would be unpardonable in a general at the head of an army when glory and the public safety demanded so great a part of his attention as different objects ought upon common occasions to occupy the attention of men of different professions so different passions ought naturally to become habitual to them and when we bring home to ourselves their situation in this particular respect we must be sensible that every occurrence should naturally affect them more or less according as the emotion which it excites coincides or disagrees with the fixed habit and temper of their minds we cannot expect the same sensibility to the gay pleasures and amusements of life in a clergyman which we lay our account with in an office the man whose peculiar occupation it is to keep the world in mind of that awful futurity which awaits them who is to announce what may be the fatal consequences of every deviation from the rules of duty and who is himself to set the example of the most exact conformity seems to be the messenger of tidings which cannot in propriety be delivered either with levity or indifference his mind is supposed to be continually occupied with what is too grand and solemn to leave any room for the impressions of those frivolous objects which fill up the attention of the dissipated and the gay we readily feel therefore that independent of custom there is a propriety in the manners which custom has allotted to this profession and that nothing can be more suitable to the character of a clergyman than that grave that austere and abstracted severity which we are habituated to expect in his behavior these reflections are so very obvious that there is scarce any man so inconsiderate as not at some time to have made them and to accounted to himself in this manner for his approbation of the usual character of this order the foundation of the customary character of some other professions is not so obvious and our approbation of it is founded entirely in habit without being either confirmed or enlivened by any reflections of this kind we are led by custom for example to annex the character of gaiety levity and sprightly freedom as well as some degree of dissipation to the military profession yet if we were to consider what mood or tone of temper would be most suitable to this situation we should be apt to determine perhaps that the most serious and thoughtful turn of mind would best become those whose lives are continually exposed to uncommon danger and who should therefore be more constantly occupied with the thoughts of death and its consequences than other men it is this very circumstance however which is not improbably the occasion why the contrary turn of mind prevails so much among men of this profession it requires so great an effort to conquer the fear of death when we survey it with steadiness and attention that those who are constantly exposed to it find it easier to turn away their thoughts from it altogether to wrap themselves up in careless security and indifference and to plunge themselves for this purpose into every sort of amusement and dissipation a camp is not the element of a thoughtful or a melancholy man persons of that cast indeed are often abundantly determined and are capable by a great effort of going on with the inflexible resolution to the most unavoidable death but to be exposed to a continual though less imminent danger to be obliged to exert 
for a long time a degree of this effort exhausts and depresses the mind and renders it incapable of all happiness and enjoyment the gay and the careless who have occasion to make no effort at all who fairly resolve never to look before them but to lose in continual pleasures and amusements all anxiety about their situation more easily support such circumstances whenever by any peculiar circumstances an officer has no reason to lay his account with being exposed to any uncommon danger he is very apt to lose the gaiety and dissipated thoughtlessness of his character the captain of a city guard is commonly a sober careful and penurious an animal as the rest of his fellow-citizens a long peace is for the same reason very apt to diminish the difference between the civil and the military character the ordinary situation however of men of this profession renders gaiety and degree of dissipation so much their usual character and custom has in our imagination so strongly connected this character with the state of life that we are very apt to despise any man whose peculiar humor or situation renders him incapable of acquiring it we laugh at the grave and careful faces of a city guard which so little resemble those of their profession they themselves seem often to be ashamed of the regularity of their own manners and not to be out of the fashion of their trade are fond of affecting that levity which is by no means natural to them whatever is the deportment which we have been accustomed to see in a respectable order of men it comes to be so associated in our imagination with that order that whenever we see the one we lay our account that we are to meet with the other and when disappointed miss something which we expected to find we are embarrassed and put to a stand and know not how to address ourselves to a character which plainly affects to be of a different species from those with which we should have been disposed to class it the different situations of different ages and countries are apt in the same manner to give different characters to the generality of those who live in them and their sentiments concerning the particular degree of each quality that is either blamable or praiseworthy vary according to that degree which is usual in their own country and in their own times that degree of politeness which would be highly esteemed perhaps would be thought effeminate adulation in russia would be regarded as rudeness and barbarism at the court of france that degree of order and frugality which in a polish nobleman would be considered as excessive parsimony would be regarded as an extravagance in a citizen of amsterdam every age and country look upon that degree of each quality which is commonly to be met with in those who are esteemed among themselves as the golden mean of that particular talent or virtue and as this varies according to their different circumstances rendering different qualities more or less habitual to them their sentiments concerning the exact propriety of character and behavior vary accordingly among civilized nations the virtues which are founded upon humanity are more cultivated than those which are founded upon self-denial and the command of the passions among rude and barbarous nations it is quite otherwise the virtues of self-denial are more cultivated than those of humanity the general security and happiness which prevail in the ages of civility and politeness afford little exercise to the contempt of danger to patience in enduring labor hunger and pain poverty may easily be avoided 
and the contempt of it therefore almost ceases to be a virtue the abstinence from pleasure becomes less necessary and the mind is more at liberty to unbend itself and to indulge its natural inclinations in all those particular respects among savages and barbarians it is quite otherwise every savage undergoes a sort of spartan discipline and by the necessity of his situation is inured to every sort of hardship he is in continual danger he is often exposed to the greatest extremities of hunger and frequently dies of pure want the circumstances not only habituate him to every sort of distress but teach him to give way to none of the passions which that distress is apt to excite he can expect from his countrymen no sympathy or indulgence for such weakness before we can feel much for others we must in some measure be at ease ourselves if our own misery pinches us very severely we have no leisure to attend to that of our neighbour and all savages are too much occupied with their own wants and necessities to give much attention to those of another person a savage therefore may be whatever the nature of his distress expects no sympathy from those about him and disdains upon that account to expose himself by allowing the least weakness to escape him his passions how furious and violent soever are never permitted to disturb the serenity of his countenance or the composure of his conduct and behavior the savages in north america we are told assume upon all occasions the greatest indifference and would think themselves degraded if they should ever appear in any respect to be overcome either by love or grief or resentment their magnanimity and self-command in this respect are almost beyond the conception of europeans in a country in which all men upon a level with regard to rank and fortune it might be expected that the mutual inclinations of the two parties should be the only thing considered in marriages and should be indulged without any sort of control this however is the country in which all marriages without exception are made up by the parents and in which a young man would think himself disgraced for ever if he showed the least preference for one woman above another or did not express the most complete indifference both about the time when and the person to whom he was to be married the weakness of love which is so much indulged in ages of humanity and politeness is regarded among savages as the most unpardonable effeminacy even after the marriage the two parties seem to be ashamed of a connection which is founded upon so sordid a necessity they do not live together they see one another by stealth only they both continue to dwell in the houses of their respective fathers and the open cohabitation of the two sexes which is permitted without blame in all other countries is here considered as the most indecent and unmanly sensuality nor is it only over this agreeable passion that they exert this absolute self-command they often bear in the sight of all their countrymen with injuries reproach and the grossest insults with the appearance of the greatest insensibility and without expressing the smallest resentment when a savage is made a prisoner of war and receives as is usual the sentence of death from his conquerors he hears it without expressing any emotion and afterwards submits to the most dreadful torments without ever bemoaning himself or discovering any other passion but contempt of his enemies while he is hung by the shoulders over a slow fire he derides his tormentors and tells them with how much more ingenuity he himself had tormented such of their countrymen as had fallen into his hands after he has been scorched and burnt and lacerated in all the most tender and sensible parts of his body for several hours together he is often allowed in order to prolong his misery a short respite 
and is taken down from the stake. He employs this interval in talking upon all indifferent subjects, inquires after the news of the country, and seems indifferent about nothing but his own situation. The spectators express the same insensibility. The sight of so horrible an object seems to make no impression upon them. They scarce look at the prisoner, except when they lend a hand to torment him. At other times they smoke tobacco and amuse themselves with any common object, as if no such matter was going on. Every savage is said to prepare himself from his earliest youth for this dreadful end. He composes for this purpose what they call the Song of Death, a song which he is to sing when he has fallen into the hands of his enemies and is expiring under the tortures which they inflict upon him. It consists of insults upon his tormentors and expresses the highest contempt of death and pain. He sings this song upon all extraordinary occasions, when he goes out to war, when he meets his enemies in the field, or whenever he has a mind to show that he has familiarized his imagination to the most dreadful misfortunes, and that no human can daunt his resolution or alter his purpose. The same contempt of death and torture prevails among all other savage nations. There is not a negro from the coast of Africa who does not, in this respect, possess a degree of magnanimity which the soul of a sordid master is too often scarce capable of conceiving. Fortune never exerted more cruelly her empire over mankind than when she subjected those nations of heroes to the refuse of the jails of Europe, to wretches who possess the virtues neither of the countries which they come from, nor of those which they go to, and whose levity, brutality, and baseness so justly exposed them to the contempt of the vanquished. This heroic and unconquerable firmness which the custom and education of his country demand of every savage is not required of those who are brought up to live in civilized societies if these last complain when they are in pain if they grieve when they are in distress if they allow themselves either to be overcome by love or to be discomposed by anger they are easily pardoned such weaknesses are not apprehended to affect the essential parts of their character as long as they do not allow themselves to be transported to do anything contrary to justice or humanity they lose but little reputation though the serenity of their countenance or the composure of their discourse and behaviour should be somewhat ruffled and disturbed a humane and polished people who have more sensibility to the passions of others can more readily enter into an animated and passionate behavior and can more easily pardon some little excess the person principally concerned is sensible of this and being assured of the equity of his judges indulges himself in stronger expressions of passion and is less afraid of exposing himself to their contempt by the violence of his emotions he can venture to express more emotion in the presence of a friend than in that of a stranger because we expect more indulgence from the one than the other and in the same manner the rules of decorum among civilized nations admit of a more animated behavior than is approved of among barbarians the first converse together with open friends the second with the reserve of strangers the emotion and vivacity with which the french and the italians the two most polished nations upon the continent express themselves on occasions that are at all interesting surprise at first those strangers who happen to be travelling among them and who having been educated among a people of duller sensibility cannot enter into this passionate behaviour of which they have never seen any example in their own country a young french nobleman 
will weep in the presence of the whole court upon being refused a regiment. An Italian, says the abbot de Beau, expresses more emotion on being condemned in a fine of twenty shillings than an Englishman on receiving the sentence of death. Cicero, in the times of the highest Roman politeness, could, without degrading himself, weep with all the bitterness of sorrow in the sight of the whole senate and the whole people as it is evident he must have done in the end of almost every oration the orators of the earlier and ruder ages of rome could not probably consistent with the manners of the times have expressed themselves with so much emotion it would have been regarded i suppose as a violation of nature and propriety in the scipios in the leases and in the elder cato to have exposed so much tenderness to the public view. Those ancient warriors could express themselves with order, gravity, and good judgment, but are said to have been strangers to that sublime and passionate eloquence which was first introduced into Rome not many years before the birth of Cicero by the two Gracchi, by Crassus, and by Sulcitus. This animated eloquence, which had been long practiced with or without success, both in France and Italy, is but just beginning to be introduced into England. So wide is the difference between the degrees of self-command which are required in civilized and in barbarous nations, and by such different standards do they judge of the propriety of behavior. This difference gives occasion to many others that are not less essential. A polished people, upon being accustomed to give away, in some measure, to the movements of nature, become frank, open, and sincere. Barbarians, on the contrary, being obliged to smother and conceal the appearance of every passion, necessarily acquire the habits of falsehood and dissimulation. It is observed by all those who have been conversant with savage nations, whether in Asia, Africa, or America, that they are all equally impenetrable, and that, when they have a mind to conceal the truth, no examination is capable of drawing it from them. They cannot be trepanned to the most artful questions. The torture itself is incapable of making them confess anything which they have no mind to tell. The passions of a savage, too, though they never express themselves by any outward emotion, but lie concealed in the breast of the sufferer, are, notwithstanding, all mounted to the highest pitch of fury. Though he seldom shows any symptoms of anger, yet his vengeance, when he comes to give way to it, is always sanguinary and dreadful. The least affront drives him to despair. His countenance and discourse, indeed, are still sober and composed, and express nothing but the most perfect tranquillity of mind, but his actions are often the most furious and violent. Among the North Americans, it is not uncommon for the persons of the tenderest age and more fearful sex to drown themselves upon receiving only a slight reprimand from their mothers, and this too without expressing any passion or saying anything, except you shall no longer have a daughter. In civilized nations, the passions of men are not commonly so furious or so desperate. They are often clamorous and noisy, but they are seldom very hurtful, and seem frequently to aim at no other satisfaction but that of convincing the spectator that they are in the right to be so much moved, and of procuring his sympathy and approbation. All these effects of custom and fashion, however, upon the moral sentiments of mankind are inconsiderable 
in comparison of those which they give occasion to in some other cases and it is not concerning the general style of character and behaviour that those principles produce the greatest perversion of judgment but concerning the propriety or impropriety of particular usages the different manners which custom teaches us to approve of in the different professions and states of life do not concern things of the greatest importance we expect truth and justice from an old man as well as from a young from a clergyman as well as an officer and it is in matters of small moment only that we look for the distinguishing marks of their respective characters with regard to these two there is often some unobserved circumstance which if it was attended to would show us that independent of custom there was a propriety in the character which custom had taught us to allot to each profession we cannot complain therefore in this case that the perversion of natural sentiment is very great though the manners of different nations require different degrees of the same quality in the character which they think worthy of esteem yet the worst that can be said to happen even here is that the duties of one virtue are sometimes extended so as to encroach a little upon the precincts of some other the rustic hospitality that is in fashion among the poles encroaches perhaps a little upon economy and good order and the frugality that is esteemed in holland upon generosity and good fellowship the hardiness demanded of savages diminishes their humanity and perhaps the delicate sensibility required in civilized nations sometimes destroys the masculine firmness of the character in general the style of manners which takes place in any nation may commonly upon the whole be said to be that which is most suitable to its situation hardiness is the character most suitable to the circumstances of a savage sensibility to those of one who lives in a very civilized society even here therefore we cannot complain that the moral sentiments of men are very grossly perverted it is not therefore in the general style of conduct or behavior that custom authorizes the widest departure from what is in the natural propriety of action with regard to particular usages its influence is often much more destructive of good morals and is, is capable of establishing as lawful and blameless particular notions which stop the plainest principles of right and wrong can there be greater barbarity for example than to hurt an infant its helplessness its innocence its amiableness call forth the compassion even of an enemy and not to spare that tender age is regarded as the most furious effort of an enraged and cruel conqueror what then should we imagine must be the heart of a parent who could injure that weakness which even a furious enemy is afraid to violate yet the exposition that is the murder of a newborn infant was a practice allowed in almost all the states of greece even among the polite and civilized athenians and whatever the circumstances of the parent rendered it inconvenient to bring up the child to abandon it to hunger or to wild beasts was regarded without blame or censure this practice had probably begun in times of the most savage barbarity the imaginations of the men had been first made familiar with it in the earliest period of society and the uniform continuance of the custom had hindered them afterwards from perceiving its enormity we find at this day that this practice prevails among all savage nations and in that rudest and lowest state of society it is undoubtedly more pardonable than in any other 
The extreme indigence of a savage is often such that he himself is frequently exposed to the greatest extremity of hunger. He often dies of pure want, and it is frequently impossible for him to support both himself and his child. He cannot wonder, therefore, that in this case he should abandon it. One who, in flying from an enemy whom it was impossible to resist, should throw down his infant because it retarded his flight, would surely be excusable, since, by attempting to save it, he could only hope for the consolation of dying with it. That, in the state of society, therefore, a parent should be allowed to judge whether he can bring up his child ought not to surprise us so greatly. In the later ages of Greece, however, the same thing was permitted from views of remote interest or conveniency, which could by no means excuse it. Uninterrupted custom had by this time so thoroughly authorized the practice that not only the loose maxims of the world tolerated this barbarous prerogative, but even the doctrine of philosophers, which ought to have been more just and accurate, was led away by the established custom. And upon this, as upon many other occasions, instead of censuring, supported the horrible abuse by far-fetched considerations of public utility. Aristotle talks of it as what the magistrate ought upon many occasions to encourage. The humane Plato is of the same opinion, and, with all that love of mankind which seems to animate all his writings, nowhere marks this practice with disapprobation. When custom can give sanction to so dreadful a violation of humanity that there is scarce any particular practice so gross which it cannot authorize such a thing we hear men every day saying is commonly done and they seem to think that it, it is a sufficient apology for what in itself is the most unjust and unreasonable conduct this is an obvious reason why custom should never pervert our sentiments with regard to the general style and character of conduct and behavior in the same degree with the regard to the propriety or unlawfulness of particular usages there can never be any such custom no society could subsist a moment in which the usual strain of men's conduct and behavior was of a piece with the horrible practice i have just now mentioned end of section twenty four